Amen. I wonder how far you would go to win the one you love. What would you do? I heard about one guy who had particular designs on a girl and she wasn't interested at all. In fact, she wouldn't even see him. So he decided that the way to her heart would be to write love letters and post them to her. And he did this and he sent her a love letter every day. And after a month, there was no response. So he began to send her three love letters a day. And uh, a few months later, she got married to the postman. And uh, (laughs) dating is complicated. Courtship is complicated. It was complicated when I was younger, and it's even more complicated today. I mean, back in the dinosaur days when, 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 when I did it, you know, you, you, you met somebody normally through school or through friends. You uh, phoned them with the one phone in the house that was in the hall, remember, uh, that your parents listened to every word. You were trying to see how far you could stretch the cord into the cubbyhole, um, and they were listening to everything and worried about the phone bill, uh, you know, time to wind it up. And then uh, you went on a date or two, and if you liked each other, you kept dating each other, and and, uh, and then eventually things, if they were, were good, would progress. And you'd get married, you'd either live happy ever after or you wouldn't. But it was all fairly simple. Today, with the invention of the internet and these things, it has all changed, folks. It is radically different than it was 25 years ago. And uh, things are very different now. Now you don't have to ever have uh, met the person in person. You can see their f- photo or their profile online and decide you like them. You can communicate with them. You can uh, send Facebook messages or slide into their DMs on Instagram. Apparently that's the lingo for it. Um, or, or you can online dating. Uh, you know, there's a, a, what is it, match.com, plenty of fish. Christian Mingle, is that a real thing? Nobody, I was like, the, that was like the first service. It was like, tumbleweed, you know, nobody would admit that that was a a real thing, or you can swipe right or left on Tinder, which none of you have ever heard of, and if you have, there's prayer ministry up here afterwards, but the internet has changed everything, and part of the problem with that is it has given people more choice. You know, it used to be you were kind of confined to your own social circle, to your own town, to your own neighbor. Now, the whole world is out there. And the problem is that when you have too much choice, it's very difficult to make a choice with anything. Um, But particularly in relationships, because I think young people would say to me that the psychology they found is this. People seem to think there's always somebody just slightly better out there. That, that they maybe meet somebody who's got 95% of what they want, but there's somebody else, if they can just keep swiping or whatever they do on their phone, they can find that perfect person. And then when you do meet someone, what do you do when you like them? And, they're not, and you're not sure how they feel about you. They seem to like you, but nothing's happening. Maybe they're texting you, maybe you're even going out on dates, but things aren't progressing, things aren't actually moving forward. It just seems like every weekend you're going out, but nothing is actually moving forward. What do you do? That's what we're going to look at in Ruth chapter 3 this morning. And I am aware that this is not for everybody, okay? But we are dealing with scripture as we find it. And some of you, you'll be like, I've been married for 45 years, I don't need to hear this. Maybe you do need to hear some of it. Some of you have children and grandchildren who need to hear it, and some of you are at a stage where Maybe you don't need to hear it right now, but one day you will. I'm going to be very practical, but I'm also just going to go, as we have been doing with Ruth, verse by verse through the book, and uh, we're going to have fun. 
if the first service is anything to go by, we're going to have fun. Um, if you want to send any complaints, you can do that. You can email uh, glennowen at hopechurch.com. Anyway, back in chapter one, really quick recap with this guy called Elimelech. He is one of God's people, but he moves outside the boundaries and borders of God's blessing. And when you move outside of the boundaries and borders of God's blessing, don't expect his blessing to follow you. And so he moves to this place called Moab, a pagan nation that they were not meant to go to. He takes his wife Naomi there and bad things happen because when you go to the wrong places, good things don't happen. And so it turns out that Elimelech Elimelech dies and his two sons-in-law die, uh, Malon and Kilion. And uh, eventually Naomi ends up 10 years later coming back to Israel and with one of her daughters-in-law called Ruth. Orpah, the other one, has decided to stay behind and Ruth comes back. But they're back into poverty. There's no welfare system. There's no food banks. In that time, everything was connected to land and patriarchy and the men were responsible for protection and provision. So these women are on the poverty line. And so what they do is Ruth goes out, and we saw this last week, she does, goes out gleaning. And basically, when you were harvesting your fields at harvest time, and harvest has come back. Remember, they left because of a famine. The famine is now gone. They're having a harvest. And when you were, when you were harvesting your field, when you were uh, bringing in the crop, you left a little bit around the margins. That was kind of the welfare system that God had set up for the, the marginalized, was that you would leave a little bit uh, around the margins, or you would allow people to pick up the scraps. And that's what uh, Ruth goes and does. It's basically like hanging outside the back of a restaurant or outside the back of Tesco late at night and picking up whatever they have thrown out. And that's what she does. But then we had this incredible uh, story seen last week where we came across this little phrase that just so happened. Out of all the fields in Bethlehem, all the acres that she could have went gleaning in, she just so happened to stop into a field belonging to a guy called Boaz. Bo, as we call him. And not only that, but as she gets there, it just so happens that Boaz pulls up in his uh, four-by-four camel, and he gets off it, and he sees Ruth, and he says, who is that? It just so happened, he noticed her, and he said, who is that? And they say, oh, that's Ruth, she came back with Naomi. And it just so happens that uh, Boaz is one of her kinsman redeemers. Now, I know that you all knew exactly what that was, but let me explain it once again really briefly. Kinsman means relative. Redeemer means one who can buy back or claim back that which was lost. And so because everything was tied to the land back then, without land, you really were on the poverty line. And land was always passed through the male heirs. If you didn't have any males in your family, you lost the land. And because... uh, Naomi's husband and two sons-in-law are dead. They have no males, so they have no land. A kinsman redeemer was the closest male relative, and if he married the, the deceased's widow, he could claim back the land that was lost. He was a kinsman, a family member, who could redeem, who could claim back. And it just so happens that Boaz is wealthy, he's single, and he's godly, just like exactly the sort of guy every single Christian girl wants. And so we, we saw last week that, that, uh, that they have their first date. 
um, that, that Boaz notices her and he's extremely kind to her. And he says to the other guys, don't you lay a finger on her. Don't you go near her because it's a big field and they'll never find the body if you do. And he tells Ruth, you stay in my field as long as you're under my wings, under my protection, you'll be safe. Stay here for the rest of the harvest time. And so they've had their first date. And now um, it's seven weeks later and harvest is ending and nothing has happened. No text messages, no calls, no asking, does she want to go down to the Bethlehem Cineplex to see a movie on Friday night? No, do you want to go for a KFC? Nothing has happened. And she's getting a little bit anxious, but not only is she getting a little bit anxious, Naomi, her mother-in-law, is also getting anxious. They're wondering what's going on. I wonder if any of you have ever been there. Guys, girls, let's take... Girls, imagine you meet this guy. Let's call him Steve. And you go out on a date with Steve and you get on well and there's a connection there and you click and he walks you to the door at the end of it and you wonder, are you going to have that awkward moment? Are you going to, and he kisses you on the cheek and he says, I had a lovely night and he goes away and you think, Steve's a lovely guy, you know? Good guy, Christian guy has got a job, got most of his own teeth, uh, you know, didn't, didn't like the shirt, but we can work on that. Uh, you know, I'd like to say, and, and, and you're just so sure that you and Steve are, are going to, to uh, start something beautiful. And so you think, well, the next day he'll text me, and the next day comes, and there's no message. Two days, no call, no text message. Maybe he's busy with work. The weekend rolls around. You don't make plans with your friends because Steve's going to be asking you out. Then on Saturday night, you find yourself eating a microwave meal for one, watching the X Factor, checking your phone every five minutes, wondering, where is Steve? Why hasn't he called? Maybe there's something wrong with your phone. You check the network to make sure that O2 is functioning in your area. Yes, your phone is fine. O2 is fine. Maybe he's lost your number. Maybe he's had an accident and he's in hospital. Maybe he's got the Ebola virus and has been quarantined and can't make contact with the outside world because there has to be some logical explanation why Steve hasn't contacted you or maybe just like the movie says he's just not that into you but you need to know you've got to find out you need a plan and that's where we find Ruth at the beginning of chapter three here let's read what she does verses one to six one day Naomi her mother-in-law said to her my daughter Should I not try to find a home for you where you will be provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself. Put on your best clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. This is scripture, folks. I'm not making, this isn't even the message translation. This is the NIV, folks. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I bet he will. I, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Notice this starts off with two words. One day. One day. One day can change everything in God's economy. One day. All of what we're going to see next happens within the space of 24 hours. One day can change everything. And here's what I've discovered with God in almost 30 years of being a Christian. Is that God tends to move slowly. 
And then he moves very quickly. You're praying, you're waiting, you're getting frustrated, nothing's happening. And then suddenly something shifts, there's breakthrough, and everything moves very quickly. I have a friend in, in California we were with a few years ago, and he has one of those Tesla cars, you know, the ones that drive themselves. And uh, we were out for breakfast, and he said, Craig, do you want to drive the car? And I said, I think I'll pass. Um, and uh, he drove, and he's driving along the road with no hands. But before we got in, I said, is it fast? He says, Craig, it's like a golf cart on steroids, is how he described it. And he was right. And because you start off, and for the first few seconds, you're slow, and then it's just like, and you're flying down the road. You go not to 60 in just a few seconds. And sometimes God is like that. It's slow, it's slow, it's slow, and then things happen very fast. Remember the Israelites? They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, and then three days it takes them to get into the promised land. 40 40 years of wandering, and then God accelerates things, and things move very quickly. We have a God who can accelerate things. We have a God who, who seems to move slowly and then can move very quickly. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, will you turn water into wine? And he seems to say no, and then he bypasses the whole fermentation process. He bypasses the whole grape growing process and immediately they've got perfect wine. God is a God who can accelerate things and he moves slowly and then he moves quickly. Bizarrely, it is Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, who comes up with a somewhat crazy plan to get Boaz to marry Ruth. Like most mothers, she, she knows what's best for her daughter. She, she knows that her daughter's survival and her daughter's security Her daughter's protection and provision is tied up with who she marries. And out of all the guys out there, Bo is the best choice because he is a kinsman redeemer. He's one who can provide for her in the future and rescue her out of destitute poverty. So Naomi here has had enough of hearing nothing from Boaz. So she comes up with a plan, a master plan. But before we look at our plan, let me say one thing here. We believe all scripture is inspired by God. It is God's word and we are live according to scripture. However, there is a difference between scripture which is descriptive and scripture which is prescriptive. Prescriptive means that you do exactly as it says. It's like a prescription. It tells you exactly what medicine to take and how often to take it. You don't mess with it. You don't double dose it. You don't get a different medicine. You do exactly what it says on the 10. That's prescriptive. The 10 commandments in scripture, prescriptive. We don't mess with them. We don't change them. And a lot of scripture where there's commands are prescriptive. But then there's other things that are descriptive. And descriptive simply means this. It tells you what happened. It doesn't tell you to do the same thing. It's simply telling you a story, but it's not telling you that this is how you're meant to go out and live. So it says David committed adultery with Bathsheba. That doesn't mean you can go, well, David did it, it's in the Bible, so I can do it too. It says Judas went out and hanged himself. That's descriptive, folks. That is not prescriptive. And so we need to distinguish. And what I'm trying to say is that the story we are reading today is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. It is not telling you that this is how to date. This is how to get the man or woman that you want. Okay, I've got that disclaimer out of the way. What does Naomi tell Ruth to do? She says, Ruth, the barley harvest is over. And so tonight there's going to be a big party. Because at the end of the barley harvest, this is when you, um, 
you found out how much, you, you basically counted how much you'd gathered. And there was going to be a big party. And so she says, go down there. They're going to be having some food. They're going to be having a few glasses of wine. And they're going to be celebrating with friends. Here's what you need to do. Get yourself washed, Ruth. It's in the Bible. Get yourself washed because you've been in the fields for seven weeks. And a bath would be good right now. The power of the shower. Then Naomi says this. Put on your best outfit. Splash on some perfume. Again, it's in the scripture. She says, put on some of that Moabite musk that you brought back with you. The guys seem to like that. And get down there to the party. Let me just add a footnote here. While it's character and integrity and what's on the inside that counts, there's nothing wrong with making an effort on the outside. My theory has always been this. Do the best you can with what God gave you. That's it. Some people are naturally genetically better than others. Just do the best you can with what you got in every part of life, and that includes your looks. Do the best you can with what you've got. And, uh, and, 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 and if you're going out with somebody and you like them, put a bit of effort on. Why not look your best? Ladies, a wee bit of the Olesi Miyaki. Men, a wee bit of the Brute. You know, uh, have them noticed you, give you, you know, a wee bit of Lynx Africa. Give yourself the best chance possible. But what Naomi doesn't tell Ruth is to dress like a floozy she doesn't say you know that wee short skirt that looks like a belt put that on no she dressed modestly there's decency there's godly character anyway Naomi says Ruth make yourself look real pretty go down to the party however don't interrupt them because guys they like a wee bit of space when they're with their mates so stay back a bit let Boaz enjoy himself with his friends once he's had his food and a few glasses of wine he's going to lie down he's going to go to sleep at the threshing floor because at the end of the harvest this is when people are most likely to steal the stuff that you've worked hard for so he's going to fall asleep there take note of where he goes to sleep then when it gets dark find him go lie at his feet and he'll tell you what to do next folks this is in the book i am not making this stuff up it would be like saying you know the lads are going camping after they've had a few beers and bill's fallen asleep climb into his tent and he'll tell you what to do next that is not wise advice, folks. Naomi probably has not given her daughter-in-law the wisest advice in the world. But we are reading the book, and remember, it is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's telling us what happened. It's not telling you to go and do likewise. So this is Naomi's grand plan. Is it the best idea in the world? Probably not. But let's see what happens. Ruth heads off singing, I'm going to the threshing floor, and I'm going to get married. Look at verses 7 to 9. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. I mean, men would not be horrendous. Uh, Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. So Boaz has had a good night. Glass of wine or two, celebrating with his friends. Falls asleep to protect the crops. And Naomi, or or Ruth, comes into the field. She's quiet. She's like a ninja sneaking through the field. And she gets to find Boaz because she saw where he lay down. And she lies down at his feet. But before she does, she pulls back the cover off his feet a little bit. She pulls back the duvet a wee bit and places herself at his feet. Why does she do that? It's an interesting one, isn't it? This is the reason why. 
it's almost like an alarm clock. As the night gets later, the temperature gets colder. As the temperature gets colder, Boaz is going to be woken up because his little feet are getting cold. And when he wakes up because his feet are getting cold, he's going to look down. Who's going to be there? Ruth. And they'll be able to have a private conversation. That's the whole point of what's going on here. Well, that's pretty much what happens. In the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up. He sees a shadow lying at his feet. Probably nearly has a heart attack to begin with. And he says, who are you? Good question. And she says, I'm Ruth. Spread your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? Spread your garment over me. Does that mean let's get under the duvet and have some action? No, it doesn't. Okay, this is what it means. It's basically her way of saying, Boaz, I'm available if you want to marry me. Spread your garment over me. Some translations say this, cover me with your wings. It was a term of betrothal. It means be the one who looks after me. Be the one who covers me. Be the one who provides for me. Be the one who keeps me safe. Be the one who protects me. Boaz, you're my kinsman redeemer. How do you fancy redeeming me? They say that a mother hen will do anything to protect her chicks. In fact, in some places where there's wildfires, like in California and some of those places, what they have found is this, that after uh, the fire has, gone, put, has been put out, they will find a charred dead hen. But when they lift up the charred wings, the little chicks are still alive underneath. She will do anything. And that's the image here of spread your garment over me. Cover me with your wings. And Ezekiel, the prophet says this, through, uh, speaking on behalf of God. Ezekiel 16. I spread the cor- corner of my garment over you. Exactly the same language, folks. I spread the corner of my garment over you and, co- and, co- and covered you, your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. It's this beautiful language of provision, of protection, of betrothal, of me coming under your covering. She's not proposing to Boaz. She's proposing to Boaz that Boaz proposes to her. Let me say a few things here for for all the single ladies. For anyone out there who isn't married and would like to be one day this might get again a few emails but it's worth it Uh, if i was over uh, if i was having a coffee with you this is what i would say to you first of all ladies it is not your job to initiate the relationship it is the man's job boaz has already done this in the last chapter last week boaz was the one who went over to ruth noticed her and invited her to have lunch with him Now, he could have kept the initiative up a wee bit, but we'll discover why. It is not the man's job, I believe, to ask you out. If he doesn't ask you out, here's what it normally means. He's not interested. He's a little bit lacking in courage and confidence. Or maybe there's some complication in his life that he's going to sort out first. Or maybe, as we're going to see happens here, he thinks you're so far out of his league that he doesn't stand a chance. Girls, that's the best one to think, if he doesn't ask you out. Okay? He's afraid of humiliation. He's afraid of rejection. Us guys, we have fragile egos, okay? And if we're all in the same friendship group and I ask you out and you give me the red card and we have all to hang out every week for the next, you know, 10 years, that's going to be awkward. And so maybe that's why he's not doing it. Having said that, it is his job to initiate. 
If you do like him, but there's nothing wrong with letting him know that you like him. There's nothing wrong with letting him know that if he does initiate, he may well get positive response from you. It doesn't mean you wear a t-shirt saying, John, I'm available, okay? That is not what I'm talking about here. I was thinking back to my student days when they used to have these things called traffic light discos, where when you went in, they said red, amber, green, and you... You got a sticker and you wore it. And if it was green, it was, I'm available. If it was amber, it meant I'm not sure. And if it was red, it meant don't come near me. Uh, no, I didn't go, I was hunting tracks outside those discos, but I know some debaucherous pagan people who actually, that's not what we're talking about here. But what we're talking about is somehow subtly manage to place yourself in front of him. If he's in a small group, why not join the small group? If he serves or she serves somewhere in church, why not serve in the same team? If, if, if everybody's heading out one night, why not go out with them? Find some way to make it easier for him to engage in conversation. And the second thing is this. Notice this Naomi who comes up with this whole idea. Naomi's the matchmaker. There's nothing wrong, Christians, with setting your Christian friends up with other Christians. There's, it's really hard to find quality Christian guys and girls out there. Christian singles tell me that all the time. It's really hard to find people out there who will treat you well, who will, who, who will be honest, who have integrity. And so there is nothing wrong that if you have a friend called Sarah and a friend called Steve and they're both single, why not invite them both around accidentally on purpose some night to your house for dinner and let them see. Some of you here today who are married met that way. A Christian friend introduced you and it seemed to work all right for you, so why not pass it on to somebody else? Uh, don't go overboard with it. That's annoying. But, uh, but if there's some gentle nudging, work away. Anyway, I'm going to skip a bit here because I definitely will get into trouble with this next bit. So I'm going to go on. Uh, back to Ruth and Boaz. What happens after she proposes that he proposes? How does he respond? So it's the middle of the night. He's woken up. She's at his feet in the movies and TV. She'd climb under the duvet. You'd see the clothes coming off and they'd have this night of erotic passion. That is not what happens here. What does Boaz do? Verse 10. Look at the first words out of his mouth. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. Bo is a good guy. His first thing he does is he prays for her. He blesses her. He brings God into it. In the middle of what could have been an immoral situation, in the middle of a place where he could have taken advantage of this young woman, he brings God into it. He prays for her. He's a godly man. He's a good man. God's the center of his life. Then he says this. Your, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Here's what I deduce from this. That from day one, Boaz has had a thing for Ruth. But Boaz has assumed that she would not be interested in him because he says, you, you could have had any of the other guys. Young or old, you could have had any of them. You know, you, like, like the Israelite men always had a bit of a thing about Moabite women. They always got into trouble. And, and when the new girl comes on the scene, 
you know, she's a bit foreign, a bit exotic, a bit different, makes everybody notice a bit more. She could have had any guy. And so Boaz, because he's older than her, thought that she was completely out of his league. And so he didn't try. He ruled himself out. He thought she'd never be interested in me. He says, look at her, look at me. Not exactly a match. I just want to say to you in any part of life, don't rule yourself out. Don't rule yourself out. The Bible says we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But most of us, that isn't our issue. Most of us think of ourselves more lowly than we ought. We think, why would they ever want to pick me? Why would they ever want to go out with me? Why would that job ever employ me? In the first service, I was talking to somebody after the service, and they said they'd just got a new job, and they said they weren't even qualified for it. They can't, it's less hours and more pay. They could have ruled themselves out of even going for the interview. Don't rule yourself out. Rule yourself in. You know, the Bible says uh, that, we're, that we're to be humble. Humble isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It is, it's not being puffed up, but it's actually having a right opinion and, 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 and it's having a scriptural opinion of your identity in Christ. So don't rule yourself out. If the other person isn't interested, that's okay, but don't make that decision for them. If, we, if Becky had done that, we would never have got together. Uh, she thought I was so far out of her league when we... You know. <laughs> she's not normally at the second service, she's normally at the first one, so I'm just going to have a go here. The second thing is this. Notice how Boaz immediately talks about Ruth's reputation. He says, all my fellow townsmen know that you're a woman of noble character. Everyone knows lovely how lovely you are, Ruth. Everyone knows about your integrity, that you're trustworthy, that you're loyal, that you're a hard worker. The, the, the word basically is that you're a woman of valor. It's the same word as they used for people like Gideon in the Old Testament. That she was a, this was no pushover. This was a strong woman. This was a woman to be reckoned with. Remember, she's the one gleaning in the field all day. She's the one laboring. She's the one putting her reputation on the line. She's trustworthy. She's honorable. She's exactly the sort of girl that any real man would want. She's got character. She's somebody he could build a future with, maybe even have a family with. Yes, of course you've got to be attracted to the person. But can I say to you what I say to every couple who I marry? I say this, falling in love will get you to the altar, but falling in love will not keep you married. Falling in love will get you married, but it won't keep you married. Falling in love will make a wedding, but it won't make a marriage. And there's always three elements in a relationship. There's chemistry, there's compatibility and there's character. And so many people, there's chemistry and they think that's the one, but they don't have the compatibility and they don't have the character. And so very quickly the chemistry wears off. And when you have no compatibility and no character, things fizzle out very quickly. Marry someone who's your best friend, who you also just happen to fancy a bit. That's a really good advice. Marry someone who you can imagine sitting in 50 years on a porch, old together, wrinkly skin, just enjoying each other's company. We live in a world where it's all about the surface, it's all about the externals, it's all about this image that we convey on social media. Guys, once you scrape off those four inches of makeup, what is behind there? The Lord only knows. Anyway, <laughs> just another side point here. In the original Hebrew Bible, so we have the English Bible. In the original Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth comes immediately after the book of Proverbs. 
The last chapter in the book of Proverbs is Proverbs 31, which is about a woman of noble character. Isn't that incredible that in the Hebrew Bible, you've got Proverbs 31, which describes the sort of wife you want, a woman of noble character, and then you have Ruth, painting a beautiful picture of exactly what Proverbs 31 looks like. Anyway, back to Boaz, verse 12. Though it is true that I am near of kin, there's a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Again, I don't have time to go into all the technicalities or complexities here. But it looks like Boaz has been doing his research in those seven weeks. That Ruth thought he was doing nothing. Because how does he know that there's somebody else ahead of him in the line of the Kinsman Redeemer Club? As far as everyone else was concerned, Boaz was the only Kinsman Redeemer but somehow during the seven weeks of harvest, Boaz has been going into Ancestry.com and he's been checking out and he's discovered there's one guy who actually is a little bit ahead of him in the list. And so he has to have first refusal. And so Boaz wants to do things right. He doesn't want to marry Ruth even though he really wants He doesn't want to marry her and then in four weeks this other guy come back and say, actually, I have first choice there. He wants to do things right. He's upright. He's got integrity. So she led his feet. Let's keep reading. She led his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He's protecting her reputation. He's protecting her reputation. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he, then he went back into town. And let me finish here. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, you can imagine Naomi being up all night looking out the window. Naomi asked very casually, so uh, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happened. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Boaz says, look Ruth, there's a small problem but leave me to sort it out. I will take care of things. And then he says, take this food back to your mother-in-law. That's a really smart guy right there. Keeping in with the in-laws, isn't it? <laughs> Little bit of advice for the single guys, make an effort with the parents, okay? It's a good investment. Just be polite, shake their hand, be normal, don't talk about your knife collection or your pet, pet snakes or your tarantulas at home. Okay, just be a normal, polite human being and show them that their daughter is in good hands. Look at that last verse. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. In other words, what she's saying is if he is really interested, he will make it happen. If a man is really interested, he will walk over hot coals. If a man is really interested, he will do whatever it takes to make it happen. She says, don't rush it and don't push it. He will make it happen. You know, over the years, I've met so many people in relationships that have been going out 8, 10, 12 years. And they're not engaged and things aren't going anywhere. And understandably, quite often the girl's getting frustrated and the guy just wants to keep things as it is. 
And you say, why aren't you getting engaged? Why aren't you getting married? And he'll say, you know, he'll say, I'm not old enough. You're 56. You know what I mean? You're 56. <laughs> I, I'm waiting. This is a good one. I'm waiting until we can afford it. How many people here married were able to afford to get married? Nobody. Nobody can afford to get married. And then nobody can afford to be married after you're married. Okay? Or he'll say, I'm waiting until I'm further on in my career. What's the point in that? You'll be working so many hours, you'll not be able to see each other. Or maybe then, just maybe if there's enough pressure applied, he will set a date. You know, July 2034. You know, we've got a date in the diary in 15 years from now. If a guy really loves you, he will do whatever it takes. And I know this seems pointless first, but I have watched so many girls waste a decade of their life with some wingnut who is not willing to commit. And then he flies off with some other girl, gets engaged in three months, and the uh, the girl he was with is left with a broken heart. I have watched it. And it is sad and it is horrible and it is not the way godly men should act. If you're not interested, get out of it. If you are interested, progress it forward. But don't keep a girl in this limbo thing, hanging on to see if there's somebody else better out there. Don't spiritualize it, saying I'm just waiting to see if it's the Lord's will. That's basically your way of saying there might be somebody better out there, but I want to keep you hanging on by a thread for a while in case there's not. If you're not interested, move on. And girls, if he doesn't put a ring on it in the words of Beyonce, let him move on. <laughs> delete his number from your phone. Delete him from Facebook. Cut off all contact. And you will find out very quickly if he's interested. Sometimes a guy needs to kick up the backside to realize how interested he actually is. Anyway, that's getting off the point here. <laughs> they could sell this stuff on a course. Um, if you want to buy the DVD set of this and pass it on for Christmas. The bottom line is this for any of us. You do not have to convince people to be in your life. If you have to convince anybody to be in your life, let them walk away. Value yourself. God values you. You know, Jesus, there's times we read in scripture, people walked away from Jesus. We never read Jesus chased after them. He let them walk. People are fickle. People will come into your life. People will go out of your life. If people walk away from you, that simply means that there's, they're not part of your future. Anyone who walks away from you is not part of God's plan for your future. Otherwise, he would have them stay. But if they are part of your future, God will bring them into your life. Let's wrap this up. If this story shows us anything, I mean, you have to ask, why would God include this? In, like, He's got one book. Why this? It's because he's interested in every part of your life. See, we divide our life into sacred and secular. We have the spiritual bit, church, God, prayer, worship, that stuff over there. And then we've got the job, relationships, and money, all that other stuff. And God says, you know what? I care about all of it. Every part of your life. When you say Jesus is Lord, I am Lord of all of that. That is why this is in here. And also because There is nothing that can do you more damage or hurt you more than relationships with other people. There is nothing that I've seen cause more pain and heartache than broken relationships. And so God wants to paint a picture of a godly guy and a godly girl and how they get together and how it should be. There's very few decisions in your life 
which are more important than choosing who you'll marry. Apart from choosing Christ as your saviour, that's the other most important decision you'll ever make. So don't settle for less than God's best. But I'm also aware of this, that we've all made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. You know, I got married at 34, we met at 33. We got married quickly. But you know what? You know what that means? From 14 to 33, I was a single guy. (laughs) I made mistakes, folks. We all make mistakes in relationships. We all have things we regret. We all have things that if we could do them, we would do them differently. Sometimes things don't work out. But I want to say to you that we have a God who can redeem your mistakes. He is our kinsman. He became one of us. And he is your redeemer. Anything that you have lost, he can get back. And he doesn't just get a little bit back. She went begging for scraps and she ended up owning the whole field. As we'll see next week. Spoiler alert. Boaz is a beautiful picture in the Old Testament of Jesus. Jesus who became one of us. We had a spiritual debt that we couldn't pay. We were helpless and hopeless. But our redeemer, our kinsman, stepped in and he paid the price. And he died on the cross. He restored everything that was lost at the fall. Everything Adam and Eve lost. Jesus as our kinsman redeemer has restored it all to us. Why? Because of love. And notice how in the end, what does Ruth have to do? She simply has to sit back and wait. She doesn't have to do the work. She sits and lets Boaz do the work. And that's a beautiful picture of how we can rest in the finished work of Christ. That he has accomplished everything. It's not Jesus plus my efforts. It's not Jesus plus my work. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so at the cross we see a love greater and more perfect and more complete than any human love we could ever experience. But here's where it starts. Here's where that relationship starts. Remember, where was Ruth when Boaz woke up? She was at his feet. She was postured and positioned at his feet. And I was thinking about Mary in the New Testament. And we have Mary who breaks the ointment over Jesus' feet and worships him. And we have Mary who, when Martha's busy, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's a place of submission and surrender. And that's where this starts. It starts at his feet. We come to him in submission and surrender and we say, I am at your feet, I am at your disposal, come and be Lord of my life. And when we do that, he pours lavish abundance and goodness and grace on us that we could never have earned on our own. And there's always more grace than we need for any part of our life where we've failed.